0: in the book of Romans, in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8, from verse 5 to verse 13. These nine verses from Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to verse 13, where we read the words of the Apostle Paul, those who live according to the sinful nature uh, those who i'm sorry those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires the mind of sinful man is death but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace because the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, not to the sinful nature, to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And we'll stop there. May God indeed bless this passage to our understanding. Now, last Sunday morning... Uh, we began for the first time a short series of sermons on biblical topics on these coming Sunday mornings under the general title of Life in the Spirit, or as the Apostle Paul puts it here in Romans 8, of living according to the Spirit. And you will recall that last Sunday we began with the subject of worshipping in the Spirit, which we considered from the words of Jesus in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, that we must worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for it is such that the Father seeks to worship Him. And this morning we are coming to the second of these areas, which I have entitled walking in the Spirit, or living according to the Spirit, and God willing, next Sunday we will be coming to the third, which will be witnessing in the Spirit. The first of our subjects dealt with our relation to God in worship. Our subject this morning deals with our relation to ourselves as we live the Christian life. And our subject next Sunday morning deals with our relationship with others as we are commanded biblically to witness to others and to share the Christian faith with others. Now, as we've come to this subject this morning... The vital question concerning walking or living in the Spirit is simply this. Are there recognizable and identif- identifiable marks of the man and woman, the boy and girl, who is living according to the Spirit of God? How do we recognize such a person? What should characterize the life of an obedient, spirit-filled Christian. We hear so much from many denominations today about the importance of living the spirit-filled life. Well then, the question quite simply is, what are the marks and characteristics of the person who is doing just that? And it is a very vital and a very important question, as I have indicated to you. Now, if you will follow with me this morning in the scripture reading from which we took our passage in the book of Romans, you will see with me that there are five such identifiable marks or characteristics of the obedient Christian whose life is filled with the Spirit of God, who is walking in the Spirit. And I want you to follow with me patiently through each one of these great divisions that the Apostle gives to us in Romans 8, verses 5 through 13. Now, first of all, I want to suggest to you that the initial mark is given to us in verse 9. And it is the mark that we are indwelt by the Spirit. You, however, he says, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, remember that in this great passage, in Romans 8, from verse 5 onwards, Paul is describing two different kinds of people. On the one hand, the non-Christian. On the other hand, the believing Christian. Those who are not Christians, those who are Christians. And he is giving to us, as I said, several distinguishing and differentiating marks. And the important thing that I want you to grasp as we look at the first of these marks is that according to Paul, the Christian is not somebody who just goes to church. He is not somebody, moreover, who has a penchant or a leaning for religion. He's not someone who likes that sort of thing. But Paul deliberately gives us here the first mark by which we can distinguish the truly regenerate person, the person who is born again, the person who has been converted, the person who is now in Christ. What is it? He is indwelt by God's Spirit. Now, I want to say to you that this is the fundamental and the central and the essential truth. And if we don't grasp this, we cannot move on in this passage at all. The fundamental fact about the Christian, the most elementary truth about him, says the Apostle, is that he is inhabited and indwelt by God's own Spirit. Now look at the passage. He is so eager to express this and assure the true believer of the Holy Spirit indwelling in him that he repeats it again and again and again. The beginning of verse 9, the Spirit of God lives in you. The end of verse 9, the spirit of Christ lives in you. Verse 10, Christ is in you. Verse 11, if the spirit of him that raised up Christ from the dead lives in you. Almost a repetitive (coughs) refrain in this passage. And all of these are equivalent ways of expressing the same fundamental truth about every Christian that the full glory and majesty of the Godhead inhabits and dwells in each believer. And it's the primary truth that makes us distinct and different from people of the world. Now let me further remind you that this is not a new idea that Paul introduces into this passage. It's at the foundation of the whole biblical revelation of the Scriptures. For instance, in the Old Testament, about the teaching of redemption, we learn very very early on in the Old Testament that when God redeems his people, he redeems them for what? In order to inhabit and indwell them. If you turn to Exodus 29, for example... In verse 45, you read there as early as the book of Exodus that when God designed to bring up his people out of the bitter bondage of Egypt and so brought them up in that passage, he says, I brought them up so that I might dwell among them. And so we may ask the question, what was the purpose of the Exodus and the redemption out of bondage under the old covenant? And the answer is, that God might come and inhabit them and indwell among them in all his glory. And you find that the whole purpose of the tabernacle being established in the midst of that traveling people was to provide physical evidence to them and their enemies that here was a people apart from every other people upon the earth in the midst of whom the living God took his habitation. And later, as you know, in the period of the kings, when Solomon was finally given permission, denied to David, to erect the magnificent temple at Jerusalem, it was for the same and identical purpose that God permitted the erection of the temple that he might dwell in the midst of his people. And so, you see, when you move out of the Old Testament into the New Testament, out of the Old Covenant into the New Covenant, where the emphasis is not so much on the outward and physical, but upon the inward and spiritual, and you ask, where is the temple of God today? The answer is that he dwells in the midst of his people by inhabiting them by his glorious Holy Spirit. So that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, to those Corinthians, some of whom had been living in sin, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And Paul, beloved, is emphasizing this fundamental and all glorious truth of God the Holy Ghost indwelling his own. And you see, the result that he draws from this is that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. He does not belong to Christ. And I must say to you that this indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not an experience subsequent to conversion. It is an experience that is coincidental with conversion and regeneration and is the initial experience of every christian without which there is no possibility of being a christian at all indwelt by the spirit now that's where our walk in the spirit begins but how does it continue and here is the second truth from this passage not only are we indwelt by the spirit But, beloved, we are resurrected by the power of the Spirit, and you have this in verses 10 and 11 of the passage, where Paul writes, And if the Spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead is living in you, he shall quicken or make alive your mortal bodies through his Spirit that in dwells you. Now, in other words, what is the Christian life but a life that has experienced and a rising from the dead, a resurrection by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And this is one of the reasons why the indwelling of the Holy Spirit must be an initial and universal experience of the Christian. Because by his power and indwelling, we are raised to newness of life as a member of God's church. We receive spiritual life when he comes to indwell us. So I want you to grasp this, that what is happening when we receive the Spirit of God is really a double resurrection. As you look at verses 10 and 11, something that we have experienced here and now as a resurrection and something that is a promise of a second resurrection that is still ahead of the believer. So you see in verse 10, there is a spiritual resurrection. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit, says Paul, is alive because of righteousness. And what has happened is that the Holy Spirit has come into the Christian's life who was dead in trespasses and sins and could not respond to God at all and could not do anything but is spiritually good. And he has raised him from a condition of spiritual death to one of spiritual life. And that is the first dimension of the resurrecting power of the Holy Spirit so that the Christian is no longer spiritually dead. We are not in trespasses and sins dead any longer, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, but God has quickened us into newness of life. But the double resurrection is that the day is coming, you notice in verse 11, when he shall quicken or make alive your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. And that's why the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1, for instance, is described as the earnest or the down payment of our inheritance. You have received the Holy Spirit, says Paul in Ephesians 1, as the first installment, as it were, of your salvation. Why does he say that? Because although we are resurrected now spiritually from the deadness of sin, it's not the completion of our salvation because there is more to come. There will be a bodily resurrection by the power of the Spirit at the last day. God has raised us now to spiritual life. It is a contemporary resurrection to new life in Jesus. But not only is there a present day work of resurrection in the spirit, there is a future day work of resurrection in the very resurrection and reconstitution of our mortal bodies as well. And the one is the harbinger and the promise, beloved, of the other. If the spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead lives in you now, says the Apostle, He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. Now you see, the point of this is quite simple. That we should be able to recognize the marks of such a transformation in our own lives and in the lives of others around us. If they are indwelt by the Spirit who does a work of contemporary resurrection, In their lives, they are no longer dead in trespasses and sins and following the ways of this world and living under the power of the ruler of the kingdom of this age, the spirit who is now at work among the children of disobedience and living under the cravings of their sinful nature, but they have been made new in Christ Jesus And the whole bent and direction of that new resurrection nature leads them to desire and follow after the things of God and to look for and long for the completion of that first installment of the Spirit, which is the promise and harbinger of the very resurrection of their mortal bodies. Beloved, are you living this morning in that knowledge and persuasion? Are you waiting for the day? when he will resurrect the body of your humiliation and make it like his own glorious body. And when our perfected spirit joined with that body shall be forever in the presence of the Lord. That's what this work of the spirit implies. It is a work of resurrection. Now thirdly, do you see we are not only inhabited and resurrected in a double sense by the work of the spirit, But at the beginning of verse 9, thirdly, we are controlled by the Holy Spirit. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, says the apostle, speaking to believers, but by the Spirit. Now, here is another distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian. What is it? It's in the area of the controlling principle Of our lives. In other words, the Christian is no longer living a life that is self pleasing and filled with the desire for self indulgence and taken up with the self centered and sinful practices of this world, which is naturally a nature that is hostile to God, Paul reminds us, and is in open rebellion against Him. It is not subject to God's law, nor indeed can be. No! The Christian is no longer living in hostility, but in submission to God's will. He is no longer living in rebellion before God, but with a yielded spirit is offering himself up to God. So the distinctive lies in this, but the Christian's controlling principle of life is no longer seeking one's own pleasure and gratification and self-interest, but is saying in every situation of life, what can I do in this situation that pleases him? Now, beloved, let me say that this is of great contemporary importance. Many Christians I find today are deeply concerned and interested in what they call knowing the dynamic of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Some Christians call it the filling of the Spirit or the fullness of the Spirit. But the question is the same. How can I know the dynamic of the Holy Spirit in my life as a Christian? Because I feel the lack of power in my life and effectiveness. And some have even said to me in the course of a long gospel ministry, I feel, you know, Mr. Dallison, that I have the form of godliness without the power of it. And many Christians are drawn and attracted to the fringe movements and the charismatic type of so-called Christian churches because of this desire for the dynamic and the power of the Spirit. And the answer, let me tell you, is that we can never divorce the dynamic of God's Spirit from the dominion of God's Spirit. It is the life lived under the dominion or direction of God's Holy Spirit that will begin to experience the dynamic of the Holy Spirit. And this is why Paul directs us to the Spirit-filled life. If you want to know the power of the Holy Spirit, he says not only must you be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and know his resurrecting power in your life, but you must know the control of the Holy Spirit and must live in obedience to the revealed will of God into which he leads you. Now listen, this is the fundamental difference between the Christian. And the unregenerate, isn't it? And we should expect to see this difference. The Holy Spirit's purpose and intent after all is to take us back and back and back again to the holy law of God and apply that law to our lives and to see in that application the fruits of holiness developing within us so that we are living under the control of the Spirit of God but leads us into obedience to the revealed will of god and that's how we experience the dynamic of the holy spirit's power and that's how we can tell a true christian from a counterfeit christian i remember many years ago hearing from a good friend of mine in scotland a very well known preacher even on this side of the atlantic the reverend e j alexander who after a great address of his upon the work of the Holy Spirit was spoken to by a man in his congregation who had heard that address, who was simply passing through the congregation. And the man said, Mr. Alexander, that was a magnificent exposition upon the work of the Holy Spirit and he expatiated and enlarged upon how wonderfully this had drawn God's truth into his own mind and how helped he had been by this. And how he felt he was a man who more and more was living in the fullness of the Spirit. And Eric Alexander found weeks later to his devastation that this man was all the time living in sin with another man's wife. That's how you tell the counterfeit profession of faith from the true profession. Is the man who says, I know that I am a Christian, living under the control of the Spirit of God. We are not controlled, says Paul, by the old sinful nature, but by the Spirit of God. And the whole bent and direction of our lives is set on a new course of loving obedience to him who is our Lord and Savior. And it is so important in these days for us to grasp that. Now, do you notice, fourthly, that not only are we indwelt and resurrected and controlled by the Spirit, but we are indebted to the Spirit in verse 12. We are men and women and boys and girls under obligation to do certain things. And Paul is drawing a conclusion to what he has been teaching us in these three previous areas. Now, let me pause and say to you, it is so important, beloved, to draw right conclusions. You know that from general life itself. You can draw a a wrong conclusion from a set of circumstances or propositions that will get you into great trouble and deep difficulty. Or you can draw the right conclusion, which will lead you into a large play. Now, it's so important to draw a right conclusion here. And Paul says, beloved, we are indebted, or we have an obligation, not to the sinful nature, verse 12, to live according to it. Now, you see, why I emphasize this, is it possible for a Christian to read all that we've read in the earlier verses, as we did, To know that he's indwelt by God's Spirit, has experienced the resurrection power of the Spirit, and is being controlled by the Spirit, and draw a long conclusion from it. In other words, I will sit back, fold my arms, and do nothing. Because he's doing it all. And this is not a biblical conclusion to make. What conclusion does the apostle make from the fact that we are indwelt and resurrected and controlled by the Spirit? Not that we sit back and do nothing, but that we live as men and women, boys and girls, who have a debt to pay, who are living under obligation to God precisely because he has done these things for us. Just as Paul in Philippians 2, verse 12, having said that it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to do of his own good pleasure, immediately follows that by saying, work out your own salvation. In other words, you work out, in a sense, what God has worked in. And it's precisely the same here. God places us under obligation to live a certain kind of life. Not in terms of the flesh or the old sinful order, but in terms of the spirit. In other words, in terms of obligation to God. And it's so important again in these days in which we live. You see, so many people today simply think that the Christian life is let go and let God. And there is nothing more unbiblical and dangerous than that. And it's very interesting to me that the Lord Jesus in his ministry took up the same idea of obligation that lies upon us. Do you remember that incident in the Gospels when his enemies came to him and said, shall we or shall we not pay tribute to Caesar? You remember his answer, render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. There was no question about that, was there? It wasn't an issue in Jesus' mind. It was an obligation. This is Caesar's coin. Give it back to him. You must pay your taxes. It's not a question of whether I feel disposed to pay them today, or I'll feel better tomorrow and I'll find it easier, or I do it because I feel good about it. Just like going to work, I don't go to work tomorrow morning because I feel It's good for me to do it. I go because I'm obliged to go because my employer has bought my time and it's not mine, it's his. I'm under obligation to give it to him because he has bought it. But we often forget that that incident of Jesus is followed by the word and render unto God what belongs to God. And it's identical in thought form. There is an obligation that we should obey God and live according to the Spirit not because we're feeling some emotional afflatus today and our spirits are in good shape today and it suits me to do it today but because I am indebted to God to live according to Not to the old sinful nature, but according to the Spirit of God. It is a plain and evident matter of duty. Now, beloved, let me say to you, there will be times when it is a joy for me to do it. And I find it easy to do it. And I want to do it. But fundamentally, I'm not doing it because I feel good about it. I'm doing it because I'm a man under obligation. And there'll be dark and difficult days where if I relied on my feelings, I would never do it. And we need to challenge ourselves in the Christian life by saying to ourselves constantly, whether I feel like it or not, whether I'm on an emotional high or not, I am indebted and obligated to do what is my bounden duty to render unto God what rightfully belongs to God. He's bought it. It's His. And I cannot keep it back from Him. And what that means in practical terms is that I become ruthless with everything that turns me away from God, whether it's the ear, Things I hear, the eye things I see, the hand things I do, the feet where I go, the newspaper which I use in place of family worship, the television which I may use in place of coming to the Sunday evening service. I am ruthless with everything that will turn me away from my proper obligation to God. Beloved, it comes down to practical, daily matters like that that indicate whether I am where I should be as a Christian, living under obligation. I don't find it easy. I don't always find it delightful. But I do find that it's a debt and an obligation that he expects me to pay. And I find truly that joy comes in the paying of it at some stage and season. Now, finally, as I draw to a close, not only are we indwelt by the Spirit and resurrected and controlled by the Spirit and indebted to live according to the Spirit, but we are enabled by the Spirit in verse 13. Do you notice what Paul says? If you live according to the sinful nature, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And the emphasis there in verse 13, alongside the obligation, you notice, is that lovely, biblical, uplifting emphasis of the enablement of God's Spirit. Or to put it in another way, not only do we have a new responsibility as Christians, but we have a new capability. It is the Spirit, you see who enables us to put to death the deeds of the body, which means our propensity to sin and to disobey. It is by the Spirit in the King James Version that we mortify, do to death that which should not live in our hearts and minds and lives as professing Christians. So Paul goes on, you notice, in verses 14 and 15, to speak of the Christian being under the leading and gracious governing and provision and direction and protection of the Holy Spirit. Thought tumbles over thought as he goes on through this passage as he speaks of the Spirit's enabling. So you see, it comes down to this, that if I am not living the Christian life in these five ways, It's certainly not because God has not given to me resources to do it. I can't make that my excuse. But almost certainly because I am not giving myself up to God in a life that is walking in God's Spirit or living according to God's Spirit. I am not setting my mind earnestly upon the things in which He delights and takes pleasure but when I do begin to set my mind on these things, beloved, I find the adequacy of God's provision. By the Spirit I am enabled to live not according to the flesh, the old fallen nature, but according to that new, resurrected, new life nature that God has given me in his grace. I am experiencing the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit's power, I am being enabled to live a life that truly pleases Him. And so in conclusion, this. What have you set your mind on, my friend in Christ this morning? You boys and girls who are present in the service, this is for you, too. Do you profess to be a believer in the Lord Jesus? Has God so lovingly and tenderly given you a sense that His Spirit is living in you and has changed your young and tender hearts so that you begin to love to read the Bible a little each day and talk with your parents during family worship about the things the Bible speaks of and about the Lord Jesus and about temptation and the importance of prayer? What are you setting your mind on, boys and girls? You as adults, what is your motivation this morning? Where do your ambitions lie? Where is the controlling principle that governs your life? What motivates your whole being today? Because when these things are set on him, the Spirit not only requires me, but enables me to glorify God in every way, to live in a with what he desires, and to have a mind controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. May God make us in this congregation such a people as that. For Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we consider so inadequately what is comprised in a biblical walk with God, a life that is according to the Holy Spirit of God and His desires for us, there is none but would confess we fall oh so lamentably short. But we thank Thee, our Father, that that which is inadequate in us may be made adequate by God's Spirit. Help us then to receive this word not as a passing lesson of the day, but as something that takes deep root in our hearts. Which we meditate on and apply to ourselves, that truly we might bring forth those fruits unto righteousness, but are in the putting to death of that old sinful nature, and living not according to it, but according to that new nature, which by God's power and through his spirit he hath implanted in each one of his people, for his glory. Faith we ask it. Amen.